Well, as we come to the Word again, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, we know that in your Word is found wonderful treasures. And yet we also know that our understanding is limited, our minds are finite, and we have the old nature, our sinful nature, that continues to bog us down. And so, Father, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would indeed speak through it to us, that you would give us open minds and receptive hearts, that we might obey what you say in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today, as has been said, we are continuing our series of addressing the core values of Foothill Bible Church. And today we're talking about the Bible, the authority of the Bible has been increasingly ignored and rejected. People, frankly, don't want to hear from God. They don't want to believe that His Word is found in a book and that they need to obey what it says. And of course, unbelievers reject God's Word. That is foundational to uh, sinful humanity. But on top of this, there are those who claim to be Christians and yet they reject the authority of the Bible as well. This position has become known as liberal theology. It involves trying to make Christian theology attractive or compliant with the modern age. And this was the case of the rise of liberal theology in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Churches began to see their seminaries and denominations reject the clear teaching of the Bible for more culturally and academically acceptable positions. Issues such as the virgin birth of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the inerrancy of the Bible came under attack. During that time, a Christian scholar named J. Gresham Machen wrote, a book called Christianity and Liberalism. By liberalism, he meant what we're calling here liberal theology. In this book, he decisively showed that liberal Christianity is not just a deformation or a perversion of Christianity, but it's an entirely different religion. It's not just that they got a few things wrong, but they're still within the fold of Christianity. They have gone off and are a part of a completely different religion. He wrote the following. He said, Liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases, it bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. What he saw was people who became embarrassed by certain doctrines in the Word of God, and thus they changed what they believed based upon how they felt. And friends, sadly, the same is true today. 
People claiming to be Christians jettison the Bible altogether. They produce a religion of their own making, usually a syncretistic mix of, of biblical teaching and modern values into a more culturally acceptable Christianity. Now, 100 years ago, it was the rationalism and materialism that caused Christian scholars to question how the Bible could fit with modern science, with things such as the theory of evolution. And they proceeded then to throw out much, if not all, the supernatural portions of Scripture. And even denying the supernatural composition of Scripture, that God is the one who brought together these 66 books. The Bible became then just a, a nice historical document composed by men and women who were very devout through the centuries. And yes, it's good to study and look at, but it's not authoritative. Today, the forefront of the cultural pressure comes against the Bible's morals and against its claims of exclusivity, that Jesus is the only way and that only in the Word of God in the Bible is the truth found. In our pluralistic age, no one has a problem with you having some personal religion, some spirituality, but many have a problem with anyone who claims that they have the ultimate truth and that this truth is what is true for all people. And I think this largely comes from the fact that we live in an individualistic age, an age in which personal autonomy is the new gospel. That for everyone to be free and to be happy and to live a prosperous life, you've got to pursue your own happiness. You've got to break free of everything, of any sort of, of things that's tying you down. You've just got to live for yourself. This gospel of personal autonomy is taught everywhere from textbooks to Disney movies. This false gospel holds out the promise of self-fulfillment if you simply follow your heart and do what you want. But the Bible directly combats this false gospel. It says in Jeremiah 79 that our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? With the implied answer, no one except the Lord. The Bible teaches, even as we read this morning in Psalm 47, that God is king over all the earth. Therefore, we aren't king of our own life. We have a king who reigns over us. And the Bible's clear, even as we looked at last week, that life is not found in living for oneself, but in dying to oneself. Remember the words of Jesus in Luke 9, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The true gospel is a gospel of self-denial, not a self-fulfillment. But, of course, people, us, we don't naturally like someone telling us what to do. I mean, that is seen from the earliest ages, children not wanting to follow what their parents say. 
Because our sinful heart, sinful humanity, wants autonomy. And this is what we see even in the garden, the first sin, is that the temptation was for Eve to think independently of God, to think that she knew what was best instead of God knowing what is best. And she bought that lie, hook, line, and sinker. And mankind has been duped by that same lie ever since. That we know what's best for our lives. That we can know what, where truth and happiness is found. Therefore, as I said, even some who claim the name of Christian, the Bible really holds no authority over their lives. This is just another piece of literature of great spiritual writing to glean some wonderful uh, pieces of advice for life. And so they say, you can't quote the Bible in the public square because it holds no authority. Oh, sure, you can quote it as an inspiration for your own faith, that there's certain verses that just really light up your life, and that's great for you. But it's wrong, they say, for you to say that this book can demand anything of anyone else. Therefore, you, you shouldn't quote your Bible to your neighbor as something for them to do, or a co-worker, or a family member. In fact, one popular Christian artist turned liberal Christian recently posted the following online. He says, Little public service announcement for Twitter evangelical friends. Using Scripture as an argument with someone who doesn't have the same view of Scripture as you is basically just a version of an elementary school, but my mom says. And you can see the absolute rejection of biblical authority in this statement. And it's sad. The truth is so relativized that the Bible is just a book that's true for you, but not truth for the world. And if you try to back up your belief with Scripture, you'll get your hands slapped for breaking the rules. No, 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 you can't quote that here. But friends, this is the cultural and theological environment in which we find ourselves, in which we live our every day. The Bible is undermined and rejected. And yet, the Bible claims ultimate authority over every single person. And it's because this is the word of the Lord. And ultimate authority has always belonged to God alone. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to be jumping around in different passages this morning as we look at the Bible supporting these claims. And in this, we simply are looking in a prayer of a king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. And in this, in his prayer, we see the statement of God's ultimate rule and reign. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6. 
He prays, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Jehoshaphat makes a clear declaration that God is in heaven, God is enthroned, and there are none that can, that can stay his hand. There are none that can compete with his power and with his might. He alone occupies a single place over all kingdoms and all nations. And you know, there was a great king of the earth that had to learn this lesson himself. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. The great king Nebuchadnezzar over Babylon. He took pride in his kingdom. He, said, he looked out and said, look at this great kingdom that I have built with my own hands. And the king who was king over him decided to teach him a lesson and sent him to go live in the field and eat grass like an ox. He was like an animal for seven years. And then look at verse 34, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. Let's see if, Dan, if Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? I think he learned his lesson. That there's a king who reigns over all. And that even he, the great king of the world at that time, was submitted to the one who answers to no one. And that is the God who, in Genesis 1-1, the first verse of the Bible we learn, created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And therefore, He is the source of all that is. Everything owes its existence to Him. He calls the shots. He sets the agenda. This is His world and His universe. Psalm 24, verse 1 the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to him. And therefore, if the king speaks, that, that word is authoritative. If he holds the authority, then when he speaks to us and to mankind, his word holds weight with us. And his word stands over us. And it never changes. Psalm 119, verse 89, says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's word is eternal like himself. It's an extension of himself. Now, Paul made it clear when he spoke to the Greeks in Acts chapter 17 that the authority of God applies to all people whether they actually believe in him or not. I want you to see this. Turn to Acts 17. Paul is in Athens. He's provoked by all the idols that he sees there. He sees that there is great idolatry. And yet he knows that there's only one true and living God. And that that true and living God who made the heavens and the earth stands over all these enlightened peoples who thinks that they're knowledgeable and and sophisticated for their great religions and, and idols that they have. And so let's see how he brings the authority of God to bear upon these people. Let's look at his, his speech to these men at the Areopagus in verse 22. Acts 20, 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine is divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul brings to the Greeks here the authority of the Lord of all the earth, the creator of all things, and says that he calls everyone everywhere to repent. And that is true for all times and all ages, that God is calling all people everywhere to repent. And he has the authority to do so. He is the king over all, and when he speaks, mankind must listen and mankind must obey. Now, as, 
if you read on, you see the reaction. There's some that, that uh, liked what Paul said and, and many that didn't. And such is the case for the gospel today. There are those who respond in humility and submission and repentance and faith and those who reject it. But the message of the gospel in which all must come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is a message that is to go to the whole world. That is why we have missionaries spread throughout the world. Because this isn't just an American message. This isn't just a message for us in this building. This is a message for the whole earth. The voice of the king of this earth must be heard throughout the globe. And so we preach, and so we share, and so we send, that all may hear and have the opportunity to respond to the word of the king. And for those of us who have been saved by God's grace, our eyes have been opened to be able to see that God indeed is king, that no one is above him, and that he is worthy of all of our affection and all of our worship. And that his word speaks to us, and we must be submitted to it. In fact, it's the very word of God that brought us new life. Salvation does not come apart from the word of God. Remember what Paul says in in Romans 10, How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? The Word of God must be preached and shared so that people can hear it, so that people can believe. And the church is a community of believers who collectively confess the authority of God's Word to rule over us. Because we confess with Jesus, who said in John 17, 17, Your Word is truth. We believe God's Word is found in the Bible, is truth. Now, as I, we've been saying, we've taken these first few Sundays of the new year to examine the core values that the elders of this church uh, delineated 15 years ago. And it's helpful for us to go back to the basics, to look again at the core fundamental realities that are to define us as a community of believers. You can find this whole list of the core values on our website. There are uh, the main headings as the titles of these messages are showing, and then there are three subpoints under each core value. And I invite you to look over those and study those. those they are taking, uh, forming, <coughs> helping me to shape uh, how these sermons look. <clears throat> and, uh, and today we are looking at the second core value, and that is we are determined to obey the Bible. We are determined to obey the Bible. Obeying the Bible begins with the conviction that the Bible is the word of the Lord, as we've been saying already this morning, and therefore has ultimate authority over our lives. And therefore, because the Bible has ultimate authority over our lives, there are three things that must characterize us as a church. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this morning. So first of all, because the authority, because the Word of God has ultimate authority over our lives, the first thing that should characterize us, number one, is our teaching must flow from the Word. Our teaching must flow from the Word. 
And how do we know that our teaching flows from the Word? Well, our teaching flows from the Word when, number one, we interpret it accurately. When we interpret the Bible accurately. A guiding verse for us here at Foothill is 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15, which all Awana uh, kids should know this verse well. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul here, speaking to Timothy, calls Timothy to work hard in his task of handling the Scriptures. And he does this by appealing to Timothy's desire to please the Lord. Notice that he says, do your best to present yourself to God. In other words, he wants Timothy's forefront thinking to be, how is God going to think about the way you handle the Bible? That's what he wants to, to shape and to govern Timothy's activity. And he knows that Timothy's last desire, he doesn't want to displease the Lord. He wants to please God. So Paul exhorts Timothy to rightly handle or rightly divide the word of truth. This command means to cut straight the word of God. Paul is exhorting his young protege to set forth the word truthfully without perversion or distortion. Give it to him straight, Timothy. Don't veer, don't wobble. Give it to him right down the middle. Throw a strike when you're teaching the word. Now, since the first century, since this was written, this has been the clarion call for churches and Christians ever since, to handle the Word of God accurately. And this is what we believe is our responsibility here at Foothill, is to handle God's Word with great care. We handle it carefully because we believe every word is inspired of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is the Word of the living God, and therefore we must handle it carefully. It needs to be taught and preached and handled with meticulous care. We don't want to misunderstand this. We don't want to mishandle this because we also want to stand before the Lord and, not, and be one approved, not ashamed. Now, we believe that the message of this Bible is clear for all of humanity. It's clear. It's not enshrouded behind some mystical code language that you need some decipher ring in order to figure it out. You can take up and read and find life for your soul. We can know that the message of salvation is, is clearly seen from Genesis to Revelation. But this clarity of message does not mean that diligent study is not necessary. Some like to take that clarity and that simplicity of the gospel message and, 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 say, and try to say that there's not need for, for deep, diligent study. But that's simply not true. As we see even in Paul's exhortation to Timothy to, to rightly handle that there's hard work. Do your best to, to, to be approved. There's need to work hard to be accurate. And why is this hard work required? <clears throat> Pastor John MacArthur lists three reasons why this hard work is required, and I think they're helpful to point out. The first the reason the hard work is required is because the author is God, okay? If we believe God is infinitely above us, 
Or as Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We would expect that if God were to speak out a word and to write a book, that it would be beyond us. That there would be aspects of it that are infinitely unsearchable. And so this is the wonder of the Bible, that even though a child can understand the message of the gospel, that multitudes of scholars through the ages have given their lives to studying this book and have yet to plumb the depths of it. It's amazing. So diligent study is required because the author is God and we want to know the mind of God and, and that takes all of eternity to do. We, diligent study is also required because it's an ancient text. I mean, this is not a, a modern book written today. This was written over the period of thousands of years, many thousands of years ago. And, and so there's numerous gaps that have to be crossed for us to correctly understand this text. We, in studying the text, we must bridge the gaps of language, of culture, of geography, and of history. We must seek to understand what the author intended when he wrote it. And this demands careful attention to the context, to the flow of argument, and to individual words and phrases. So because this is an ancient text written so long ago, it requires hard, diligent work to discern what is there. The third reason diligent study is required is because doctrinal error is so prevalent. False teaching was a constant concern of the apostles in the first century, and it's remained a frontline issue ever since. History is replete with examples of heretics and cults who have distorted the truth of Scripture. And this is why Jude had to write in his letter, in verses 3 through 4, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this con condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Doctrinal error is so prevalent and so easy by people simply taking a verse here and running with it and taking it in completely the wrong direction. And therefore, study is important. So the stakes are high. The glory of God is at stake. The gospel is at stake. Our eternal destiny is at stake in getting this message right. And so we handle it with great care. And it's because these stakes are so high that our teaching must be dictated. It must flow from the Bible. And our teaching flows from the Bible when we interpret it accurately, as I said, number one. Our teaching flows from the Word also, number two, when we teach it comprehensively. We teach it comprehensively. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says to the Ephesian elders in verses 26 to 27, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you, get this, the whole counsel of God. Paul here is, again, our example. He sets forth the standard for the church. Biblical teaching must endeavor to teach all that God has written. And this doesn't mean that every preacher needs to preach from every verse of the Bible, but it means that, that no parts of the Bible can be conveniently skipped. 
that all the scriptures must be taken into account. We cannot ignore part of the Bible. All the scriptures are for all the church. We cannot ignore the Old Testament, for example. As some like to think, though that's hard to understand, I'll just read from the New Testament. No, the, all of revealed revelation is for us. We also don't believe in doctrinal minimalism. There's a, a, a movement today to say that the only doctrine that Christians should study or, or believe is those that, that can unite all Christians together. And therefore, we should only concern ourselves with the simple gospel because they argue doctrine divides. And if we go any deeper than that, then we just bring up needless controversies, and so let's just stay in the shallow end of the pool. But we here at Foothill reject this idea and believe that the people of God need to clearly articulate all that God has stated in His Word. And this is why our statement of faith is as long as it is. If God revealed it, we should believe it. And so we seek to do that. And therefore, we're committed to teach the Word comprehensively. But the third way that our teaching flows from the Word is that we preach it unapologetically. We preach it unapologetically. Again, this just all flows from the fact that the Word of God is authoritative over us, and therefore, how should we how should we teach that? If the Word of God is life for us, and if it is through these sacred writings that we are able to come to a knowledge of salvation, then we must preach these sacred writings. We must deliver it truthfully and clearly. Once again, we take our marching orders from Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Where he writes to Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his, and by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Hearing from God out of his word is the central activity of the church of God. Now, recently, there were some public comments circulating the internet by prominent speaker Francis Chan in which he insinuated that having the pulpit in the center of the church was an aberration from God's original intent for his church, that this was simply introduced during the time of the Reformation and that the pulpit and the preaching of the word by a preacher is not what God intended for his church. Now, it is true that during the time of the Reformation, the pulpit did take centrality in the church in contrast to what came before it. But that is because what came before it was the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church in which what took center stage was the altar. And at the altar, every week at Mass, Jesus Christ was re-slain. And Therefore, the Reformers believed that that was a misunderstanding from the Word of God, and therefore the church needs to hear from God's truth every week. On top of this, the Word of God was enshrouded in a language people didn't understand. 
the, the homilies were, and, and, and the reading was done out of Latin, and the people didn't understand Latin. And again, the reformers said, no, 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 the, God's people needs God's word. And so we've got to simply be heralds of that truth. We've got to be ambassadors of the king and correctly deliver that truth to his people. And that has been the case of the Protestant church ever since, that the preaching of the word of God it needs to be central in the church. And we believe that this is simply a, a recovery of what the New Testament already emphasizes, not an addition Therefore, when we gather, we don't gather just simply hear a motivational speech. There's plenty of motivational speakers out there. You can find them on YouTube if you're looking for one. Or simply a spiritual TED Talk, for those of you who know those are, where it's a simply engagement of ideas and sharing of ideas, and, mm, oh, that's interesting. That's not what preaching is. We come to hear the Word of God. We come to hear God speak from His Word, and He does that through the preaching of the Word, and, and from that Word we are saved and we are sanctified. So if we are to be people that are to determine to obey the Bible, and if the Word of God sits over us as the ultimate authority in our lives, then number one, our teaching must flow from the Word, and that's what we endeavor to do here at Foothill. But secondly, secondly, if the Word of God holds authority over us, our lives must be submitted to the Word. Our lives individually must be submitted to the Word. You see, the Word of the living God doesn't just dictate our teaching, but it ultimately dictates our lives. We are to live according to the Word of God. God says it, and we are to obey it. Therefore, as a church, we are determined to see our lives in submission to the Word of God and aligned with the Word of God. For we know that it's through obedience to God's revealed will that blessing is found. Let me remind you of Jesus' words in Luke 11, in which he says, Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Notice he doesn't say, Blessed are those who simply hear the word, but it's those who hear the word and keep it or obey it or live it out. Blessing is found through obedience. And this is the message of the scriptures. If you follow God's way, there is blessing that is found. You know, Jesus' younger half-brother James picked up on this very theme. And I invite you to turn there to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Starting in verse 21. James writes this, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 
but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed in his doing. I want to point out a few things from this text. Notice in verse 21 that before James says to receive the word, what does he tell us to do? He tells us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. There is repentance that needs to happen for us to receive the word of God. Sin keeps you from the Bible. And we need to repent of that sin as we come to the word. We need to confess it as sin. Put it away, as James says. We can't hang on to our sin and our, our patterns of disobedience and, and think that we can just come and receive the word. We've got to confess it as sin as God sees it. And then he says to receive the word humbly. Receive with meekness, he says. We receive it humbly because we recognize that this is the word of the king. We recognize that, that he has something to say to us. But notice also that this word is a word that's able to save our souls. This Bible is not just a self-help book that can give you some good advice. This is the path to salvation. These are words of life, words of salvation for us. And even for those who are Christians, you go, oh, save my soul, but I'm already saved. But notice he says that we're receiving the implanted word. How do you receive something that's already implanted? Well, the simple reality is, is that we receive the word when we, when we first believe, and that takes root in our hearts, but we need the word of God continually. And Yes, we are saved in a broad sense, in the sense that our names are written in the book of life, but we need salvation every day. We need, we need victory over our sin every day. We need to be saved today from our sin, so we need to receive with meekness the implanted word today. Do we not? Because it's able to save our souls, to set us on the straight and narrow, to show us Christ. But notice also from this text how James talks about this, this dynamic of, of, of hearing and doing. And he says that for someone who, who reads the Word of God or hears it and then walks away and does nothing about it, is like someone that looks at his, his face in a mirror and, and walks away and forgets that his hair's all out of whack or forgets exactly what he looks like and does nothing about it. And I think there's a great illustration in this and the fact that we need to go to the Word of God. We need to see our reflection. How do we measure up to God and His standard? How do we measure up to what God has written? Where do I fall short of the character of Christ? And as we see that reflection, as we see how all the de defections and deformities, we, we need to then walk away from the Word of God and act upon it and seek to change, seek to be different. 
Some of us have looked into the Word of God for years and seen the same things and have made little to no progress in changing those things. You're looking into the law of liberty, but you're walking away and forgetting what you look like. You're hearing the Word of God, but you're not doing the Word of God. And we all have areas that are easier for us to obey in and areas that are harder for us to obey in. And those may be different than your spouse or different than somebody else. But we've got to seek to obey and be doers of the Word in all areas and categories of our lives. How does my life line up with God's Word? Am I thinking the way God wants me to think? Are my views about, about life and, 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 and society based upon His Word? Are my emotions and my attitudes, do they align with God's Word? Does my speech align with God's Word? Does my behavior and choices align with God's Word? We must be in the process throughout our Christian life, friends, of continually looking at ourselves and seeking to make changes in the power of God's Spirit. See our sin, repent of it, and seek to step out in obedience and faith. That is the Christian life. And yet, we must be in the Word and see the Word of God and have it speak into our lives. And so I exhort you to resolve this year to increase your intake of God's Word. It will be greater this year than it was last year. The goal is to have regular, consistent time in the Word of God. Aim to be in it every day, but if you miss a day, don't beat yourself up about it. There is no command in the Bible to read the Bible every day and to read through it in a year. Those are wonderful goals and great aspirations, but don't let that become a law that trips you up. Just be in God's Word. Soak up what He has written to you and find life in that. Be consistent. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, we have several on our website we'd suggest for you to do, and you can do it in a year, you can do it in two years. The point is, is be in the Word, friends. If we're not getting an accurate view of ourselves, from the Word of God, we won't know how we can better obey and submit ourselves to His Word. So we need to submit ourselves to our, the Word of God by, by seeing ourselves in it. Finally this morning, because, of the word, because the Word of God is authoritative, our ministry must be directed by the Word. Our ministry must be directed by the Word. Now this is somewhat related to our first point about our teaching, and, and we already talked about how our preaching and teaching is, finds its direction from the Bible. And there's many aspects of our ministry, both corporately and individually, that takes its cues from the Word of God. In fact, many of the things that we do around here, uh, you, you can correctly ask, okay, where do we find that in the Bible? And why do we do this? And that's healthy and good to do about all aspects of our ministry and our, our life together. But for our purposes this morning, I want to address the ministry that, to which each Christian is called to. What is the ministry that God wants you to be about? And is your ministry directed by God's Word? I remind you of Matthew 28, verse 19, which is the marching orders of the church Jesus gave to the apostles before he went up into heaven telling them, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The commission to all believers is to make disciples. And that involves the proclamation of the gospel to everybody, whether they know Jesus or not. To those who don't know, we, we share the words of life. We evangelize them, seeking that they might know the truth and might know life in Jesus' name, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life forevermore. And as then to those who do know Jesus, we continue to make disciples. That's one of the reasons why our mission statement is to make, mature, and multiply, to draw at this reality that even though while we seek to see people one to Christ, disciple-making doesn't stop there. That's simply a, making converts. We want to make disciples. Disciples are built up in the Lord. And so therefore, we're in the task of, of maturing disciples, seeing each one of us look more like Christ with each passing year. And that is the task of not just us who are on staff at the church or the elders. This is the task of every single believer to be making disciples and to be maturing the body of Christ. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, where, where Paul says that, that there are gifts to the church. He says, and Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints to do the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. God gave the church pastors and elders to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. What is that ministry? It's the building up of the body of Christ. Our goal is to instruct you, to teach you, so that you might be equippers, so that you might be builders, that you are building into each other's lives, speaking the truth, giving them the Bible. Paul says that the, believe, the saints are doing this work of ministry until we all attain to the unity of faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and from by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful, deceitful schemes. He's saying this work of ministry of building up is to happen until we all are mature in Christ, which means it continues until Jesus comes back. He says, rather, Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So folks, the ministry that God has for you in 2020 is that you would be about the building up of the body of Christ by the speaking the truth in love to one another. The church is to be a movement of believers who are on fire for Christ, devoted to Jesus, as we said last week, who then want to take the words of Jesus to one another and speak those, that truth in love. Not in a dogmatic, as I like to call, truth grenades, you know, launch into your life and say, hey, you're not obeying Jesus. Don't you know this verse? Boom. No, we come as loving the people who have been loved much and seeking to love one another, and so we do it in gentleness and with patience and with love because we want to see Jesus formed in them. And we know just as well that when someone doesn't see it and there's blind spots, we know we've got our own blind spots. And so we've got to be patient. Folks, this is the ministry that God calls each one of us to here in 2020. If Foothill Bible Church is going to be a church that's determined to obey the Bible, it's going to be composed of people 
who are actively seeking to do ministry according to the Bible, seeking to serve one another, and that means speaking the truth in love, not just hanging out, not just having a good time together, but bringing the Bible into our conversation so that we might be mature in Christ. That takes some work, sometimes turning a conversation from chit-chat to a serious question. But God conforms us into the image of Christ through this one another ministry, and it's crucial. So because the Word of God is authoritative over our lives, our teaching must flow from the Word, our lives must be submitted to the Word, and our ministry must be directed by the Word. And friends, if this core value, like all of them, is going to take root in our lives, we can't do it on our own. We need help. We cannot obey the Bible. We cannot obey Christ in the flesh. It's as Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As we seek to walk and be built up in Christ, and we see change take place. We give thanks to God who's at work within us. And he gets all of the praise for all of our obedience. Amen? Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we want to be people who are obedient to you. And we recognize there's so many areas and so many places that we need to be challenged in this. But we thank you that you are patient with us. That you are tender towards us. And so we ask as we have examined this core value, this conviction here this morning, that you would help us to leave from here this week and over the course of this year and beyond to be people that hold the word of God high over our lives, over our families, over our homes. And that whether we're at church, whether we're at home, whether we're hanging out with friends or at the workplace, that Jesus reigns. And his word dictates what we do, what we say, what we think. And we will give you the praise if we see those fruits in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.